0: Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully because there's no time to waste for all of us. Ever wonder what dying is like? I don't mean in like the metaphorical sense. I mean like literally what each stage at the end looks like mentally, physically, down to every detail. Well, today you'll meet Oceana Sawyer, who's a death doula. I recently learned that just like birth doulas who help bring a life into this world at the beginning, a death doula helps actualize the emotional and spiritual wishes of the dying at the end working both with the person dying and their family to navigate through the whole end-of-life process. In a few weeks, you'll hear the episode with my personal palliative care nurse, whose job begins far earlier than hospice, could be years out, which is what we're hoping for in my case. Her job is to treat each patient holistically, Bottom line, I'm eager to share these two conversations with the world because I didn't even know these kinds of resources existed before I found myself in this situation. And the more I learn about the resources, the more at ease I feel when I try and picture what those final hours or days will look like for me. Like many of us, I have a lot of questions. Thankfully, Oceana took me through each step of her father's transition in great detail, as you'll hear. And it reinforced what others have told me about the end being peaceful and beautiful, but more importantly, it shed light on what can happen to the body and the mind as the journey begins to the other side. I hope you'll find it both educational and comforting. I did. Here's Oceana Sawyer for No Time to Waste. So welcome, Oceana Sawyer. Would you mind, I, you know, I know I've I've done a lot of research I would love for you, if you wouldn't mind, to introduce yourself to our No Time to Waste listeners.
1: So, you know, I'm I'm an end-of-life doula. I think that's why we're talking. And I came to this work via my father. Um, I guess that was seven or more years ago now. Mm -hmm. A long time ago now. And, um, you know, he decided that he was done. He wasn't going get, to get, he was in renal failure. No dialysis for me. I'm just going to party on out. So, mm-hmm. you know, when someone says they're going to be that deliberate about their dying and you have never experienced that, then I had to go. So together he and I figured out what is death. And it was extraordinary. It was so compelling that I decided to make it my, my new gig, my next gig. So, um, and this is a, just
0: so people know. So, uh, an end of life doula, AKA a death doula. I think a lot of people have heard of birth doulas now, right? Which are basically people who are trained and super passionate about the experience of bringing a new life into this world, right? So, explain before we go more into your story kind of the definition of a end of life
1: doula what's their what's their job what's their role i i call it an a concierge for the end of your life so you know i work with the person who's dying that's mm-hmm. what the doula does they are the companion for the person who is dying
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know in an end of life everybody's got their spot you know hosp- the, your palliative care doctor has their spot Mm-hmm. Hospice has their spot. Mm-hmm. You have a chaplain who has theirs. Your family has their spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might be doing double duty as caregivers, but there's probably often there's also a caregiver and that's their spot. Well, the doula's spot is mm-hmm. to make sure that the person is dying in the way that they want to. Mm-hmm. And that their passage um, from this life into the next um, is um, not necessarily beautiful or peaceful or even comfortable, but just literally how they want it.
0: It's like the living execute execution is bad. Um, I, the living implementation of one's advanced directive across medical, financial, emotional, spiritual, like desires. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, okay, so we'll get more into the experience of being a doula and um, but go let, let's go back to your story of it was 2015 and you described that experience of um, being a partner with your father in his transition to the other side and how at least the way you described it uh, now and on your website, you know you you use the word gorgeous. You know, And I don't know if many people would describe dying or death as gorgeous or would think that anyone who experienced that would call it gorgeous. So I'd love to just hear more about that first experience with your father and what it felt like to go, I think this is my thing.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, gorgeous is an interesting word, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Dying, I just want to say at the top, dying is hard. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. It's um, it's physically not easy. And yet, so I just want to say that. And yet, in the active dying phase, a type of grace comes in. Just like childbirth, you know. Uh, I've not personally birthed a child. I've been at a birth. And what I notice is that um, this sort of liminal space opens up where all things are possible. Like these miraculous things are possible. And suddenly the stuff that you thought you could never do in a million years, like shove a eight pound bowling ball through your vaginal canal. and right. now, Suddenly that becomes possible. There's like this grace that opens up. And the same thing is true with active dying. Um, while there is that um, part looks that looks hard. There is a grace that opens up. And that's the thing that I want to, that is gorgeous. That That's what I found to be gorgeous. It's almost like, it's like, it certainly is timeless. It's just timeless. It's a time out of time kind of space. And the air kind of goes out of the room mm. in a way. And, um, It's like you're now breathing underwater. The way Mm. that you're breathing and existing is different than it was before active dying started. That's true for everybody in the process. Certainly the person who's dying and then the person, the people who are around, you all go into this like, it's like almost like a tunnel. You know how people talk about their near-death experiences where they say it's like going through a tunnel? Mm -hmm. I can tell you in the physical on this side of it, that's how it feels. If you're actually really tracking, you've opened your mind mm-hmm. and you're actually tracking along with the person who's dying, mm-hmm. that's how it feels. It feels like you are being whisked down a tunnel. It doesn't feel good, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel bad. It's just like, you know, for a person who's conscious, it's a new something new, like, mm-hmm. wow this is kind of cool. I didn't expect this, you Mm. know? It's like a,
0: like a hyper presence. Yes.
1: Like, like like
0: you're so present it is almost like a third eye sort of.
1: Exactly. And the person who's dying, it's, it's really cool because as you loosen as your connection to your body becomes less and less. Yeah. um, Then the sort of, Energy of you, the consciousness of you is actually more available, mm. and that's what I noticed with my father. Mm. Like we were able to communicate without words; we were just in communication. Um, so, it's what does time- that what did that look like without without the verbal without the verbal? You can you just well, what it is is you just you notice what you're feeling and what you're thinking, and you don't second guess yourself. Okay. You just accept it that, okay, this thought I'm having must be because we're doing this together. We're dying. So the thought came through, you know, the TV has to go off now. You know, the hospice people have been very lovely and having the TV on for him while he was mostly conscious and he wasn't conscious and they left the TV on because that's how he lived his life. And then at some point it was like, you know, the TV has to go off now. The TV, it turned the TV off. And the energy in the room changed yet again. Like it got deeper and more, at the same time, more spacious, Hmm. deeper, more spacious. Because now he's like coming out of his, his consciousness is now leaving his body. That's closing down, closing Mm -hmm. down, closing down. His consciousness is leaving it and the TV has gone off. There's silence. And then the next thought I had a few minutes later was, oh, music. Let's do music. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I turned on, I tried to get something on the radio, too much fuss. And you can feel that in the moment, like, oh, too much fuss. I'll just start singing. I don't have a singing voice. I will just start (laughs) singing. And so I sang the song that was up and over most of my mind, which happened to be a chant. (laughs) A chant by Deva Pramal, actually. Um, so I started singing this chant and then there was yet another change. And these changes, you feel them in your body. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when you're in an airplane Mm -hmm. and it starts to take off Mm -hmm. and you're not engaged in all the mechanics of how a plane gets into the air. You're not engaged in that, but you can feel it in your body. There's like lift off. These are the, these are the kinds of changes I'm talking about. The room begin to fill like energy, like came mm-hmm. into the room. Mm-hmm. And you know, hey, I got all these graduate degrees. Mm-hmm. I'm a very much a person in the rational world. Yep. I'm also a spiritual being, well yep. home in that realm too. And I I was second guessing myself, like, oh, this can't <laughs> be happening. What is this? <laughs> you know, right, really? right. It's like I'm still singing. And Then I just stopped second-guessing myself. Okay, let's just pretend it's true. And I'm thinking, okay, this actually feels good. Whatever this energy is actually feels good. And in fact, it feels familiar. Huh. Are these? Is that like my aunt? No, no. Seriously, I know. I try and then I thought, no, 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 no. I'm even second-guessing myself. Right, right. No, no, no. That can't be. And so I just let that go. But then I just, it was like blaring in my head. No, okay, let's just pretend. Let's just pretend this is my aunt. Right. Oh, and that's, oh, that's my, oh, my, my father's father and my grandfather. Oh, the room. And then there were people I could not identify. It uh-huh. was just like a, a Greek chorus showed up energetically. And I got to tell you, it felt good, Allison. It felt familiar. Yeah. Like, You know that thing they say about how how when people who are dying will often express having seen someone who's already died, a a family member. Oh, you know, Mm so-and-so was here last night. Mm -hmm. That happens all the time. And I can tell you why. Because it's real for them. And, you know, now we're in the realm of what's real and what's not real. Who cares? The point is, if you're willing to be available to it, it is present you can have this experience. I just okay, fine. The ancestors are here and you have come to take him home or there with you. And I'm like, yeah, okay, good. I'm, I'm down with that. And then it's getting kind of like weird. But then I thought, well, maybe I'll ask a question. Is there something else I should be doing right now? <laughs> yeah. Did you get any message? No, they say, no, this, this is good. You doing this. Oh, and by the way, you can stop being so afraid and just be in your heart. Oh. Yeah. I just remembered that, Allison. Thank Look at that. You're me. welcome. That's free. Yes. They said, I had that feeling like, you know, I asked. And they said, yeah, no, you're doing good, actually. You can just you know, be in your heart more and not in your head and your fear. And then that changed. Then that, that was another, this light filled. There was became now here's the thing you can't really see with your eyes but it's like that thing you can just kind of see like you know you're waking up and yeah. the sun coming in to your window yeah so there's this like luminous sparkly kind of just below what you can see in light um so that's what it felt like that's what it looked like hmm. it's like ooh, okay this is now now this is happening i left the room went to the car came back when I came back into the room my father had moved he was completely covered yes one arm was on top of the covers his eyes which had been closed were now open and his mouth was now open okay So now I'm putting that together in my head. Oh my god, this person who is like barely alive moved while I was out of the room. That, by the way, is side note. That's not unusual. You're still aware as you're dying, and you can. Your last sense to go is your hearing. Okay. So if you can, dying people often will choose that moment when their loved one is out of the room to go. And there's a, um, there's a, um, so there's a, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? begins with a V. There's a willfulness. There's a, a volition. There we go. So there's volition in that. You can. And sometimes, you know, people will say, by the way, before they go to sleep, you know, there are a lot of stories of people who like, I'm not going to be awake and I'm not going to be here in the mornings. So I just want to say goodbye to you now and blah, blah, blah. Like you
0: consciously, know? like yes. fully
1: lucid. Yes. Or, or, or those people who hang on until so-and-so gets off the plane and arrives in the room and then they that die. That's crazy. That is a volition. You that know? is, you can't like, like uh, will that away or right. like, rationalize that away. That is just volition. So I left. He decided that he was going to now see God because I tell you what, when I came back in the room and the look on his face, that is what it looked like. That is the only words I could choose. I could find to describe this expression on his, in his eyes, and his, open, mouth, and
0: his mouth and
1: the way that he had obviously done something like that. And he was not breathing. And I thought, Oh, did I miss his last breath. And then there was, I stopped breathing, and I'm just there. Right, right. So I was there, and not breathing, and watching, and he did. He took one more breath. It was like, something inside him reached for air, Hmm. which he kind of like, reached for, and then his body kind of collapsed. Wow. It was, um. yeah, he did that, took that last breath, and then I waited. And I waited. It was palpable. It was like a crushing sort of like, but not uncomfortable, but you know how someone puts a heavy blanket on you? Yeah. Like a... It was like, like a, a weighted like blanket. Yeah. It was almost like a birth, how you get pushed then at the end through that yeah. last bit of the canal. It yeah. was like that. It was like, it's compressed. And then it, there's a release. Okay. Because then the room, there's this crushing, and then there's like a lightness. It's not empty, but there's sort of like a a lightness then opens up. like, mm-hmm. A crack opened up, he went through it, and now he's he's like not in the body. He's gone. Wow. He's still around, but he's not in the body. He's gone, yeah. and there's a lightness that comes. And at that moment, I thought, okay, he's dead. I then, by the way, you should know this too, anybody who's attending yeah. you or attending anybody, electronics do not work immediately before and immediately after a person dies. In the room? In the room, yes. This is so common. Electronics, like um, things that require frequency. Okay, know, like, like your phone. phone. Yes, like your cell phone. This is so common that the hospice nurse tells me, oh, yeah, we don't even try anymore. We tell people. Why? What? what I did at the moment that my father died was I then tried to call my brother. Oh. My brother, who's like on speed dial, just like press a, press a button, you know. Right. It would not work. What? I just was like pressing this button and pressing this button and pressing this button. I had bars, but I could not get this call to go through. That moment that I broke down. Mm. And like a miracle, I break down and the hospice nurse walks literally into the room at simultaneously. Mm. So now I am enfolded In the arms, this person never spoke a word. She comes right in, Mm. puts her arms around me. And I got to tell you, this was a six foot tall sister. (laughs) Huge sister. Just wrapped me in her arms and I just bawled like a baby. And she just, all she said was yes. Let it go. Mm. When I started stopped crying, it was an, I didn't like will myself. It was like okay, that was enough of that experience. Mm. And then I was shaking and I sat down with, next to my father and she left. So and then the ancestors slowly started to leave. It was very gradual. So that's what I mean. So this liminal space that my father and I were in together, that space, Mm -hmm. that was the moment after that, right after that, you know what, I can do this.
2: Hey squad, it's former guest Ethan Zahn here. At the end of today's episode, I'll be interviewing tennis star James Blake on behalf of Active Against Cancer to learn how he was able to bounce back to the top of the table after some major injuries and caring for his father during his fight with cancer. So stay tuned.
1: So um, after a couple more of those experiences, I decided to make that a formal, my next gig. I had retired. I was already not um employed in my corporate job anymore. Um,
0: Which, sorry, I, just to inter. hold on, I just want to let listeners know. So Oceana has a, a corporate background, just like I do, um, where she was doing uh, corporate training uh, with uh, education and organizational behavior and organizational development, development right, for uh, companies like Hewlett Packard um, and for Levi Strauss. So to, to make a transition from that type of a role um, you know uh, it's making more sense now, especially that beautiful um, sort of rendition of, of your experience with your dad. Um, And I, and I have to say, um, I interviewed uh, Rabbi Steve Leder. He talked about, you know, how he's never been with anyone, at the moment of their passing, or even just prior, when the person dying was scared or anxious, um, mm-hmm. that they always have been uh, in a place of presence and peace and acceptance, and that hearing his um, his explanation and even just hearing your experience with just your father, but I'm sure so many people after it brings me as a person who is hopefully i mean we're all dying right Mm -hmm. um mine's definitely going to happen probably sooner than most um but it brings me so much comfort to hear that and to hear here you get so specific and and so eloquently describe the spiritual space and the spiritual impact and the emotions of, of those moments, um, yeah, selfishly, I'm just so grateful, um, that you were able to get that specific because I will think back on it a lot when I fear, when I find myself in a place of fear. Right. And I will remember what Rabbi Steve, um, told me, and I will remember what Oceana told me about what it's like and that it's not something to be afraid of. and um, it shouldn't have the, the darkness and the the sadness. Like, you know it it can, it can be a beautiful experience as well, a sad one for the people left behind, you know, but a beautiful experience. And um, I just I just want to thank you for going
1: back there. Jen Matthews, do you know who she is? Jennifer I Matthews. Don't. No, you must, you must um, look at her her TED talk. Okay, she does a TED talk that that is so controversial. It has a disclaimer on it. Whoa, that says, you know, this may not be whatever. This may challenge your views about death. But her partner um got a type of cancer that was um, fast moving. And so um, her partner started slowing down. They got a diagnosis and her partner was gone, I believe within three months or less. So it happened very fast. And by the way, a lot of the deaths I've attended also happened very fast. It's almost like a person decides, okay, this is happening. So I'm now just going to wind this down. But what they did on the way to this death was there was laughter, Hmm. there was celebration, there, of course, there was acknowledgement about the hardness and the loss and the sadness. There was all that, but there was also this deliberate input of this other Hmm. experience. And so that when this um, Jen's partner died, they had done everything. They had said everything. It was yeah. complete. And they had created this container of, of love and joy. Hmm. So that when her her partner died, it was a glorious experience. Um and she talks about this in the video. So I mentioned that to you because um this these are deliberate steps that you can take yep. to have your passing be how you want it
0: how do you but here's a i'm so into that i'm so into that anybody that knows me i've lived my life like there's no time to waste you know and that has included everything that i talk about maximizing moments focused on gratitude human connection and joy i'm someone who has always infused humor bordering on snarkiness um into the way that I talk. And I've always been someone that has just gone on epic adventures and lived every day and had a freaking blast. And I am so privileged to have been able to experience the things that I have experienced in my life. And I am, I I suspect I'm not ready yet (laughs) I'm not ready. Uh, I still have more more adventures that may not be as epic as the ones of my youth, but um, I still have things to do and I still have people to see and things to say. Um, and more importantly now with this podcast and my speaking engagements, people to help. Um, so I'm not ready yet, as you can hear in my voice. I will not go into that dark night quite yet. Um, but my question to you is I can control myself. That's it. Right. Um, I can, I can document my wishes and I can talk about, which I've already started like documenting what I want that sort of those end of, end of days to look like and who I would want around and what kind of music I would want. And the vibe I'd be going for. And, you know, I can do all that. What I can't control and I recognize is I cannot control my loved ones. I cannot control my partner. I cannot control my parents. I cannot control my sister. Um, I can't, as much as I want to say, and I guess I will say, like, hey, be cool, like, let's have it be kind of a party. And then like the party kind of like mellows out and then like everybody goes home, you know, but like, hey, it should be a cool party in the beginning. And everybody should be like, you know, enjoying themselves like I can I can request all of that. My fear is in my inability to control people, and how they experience their grief. In that final chapter, what do you recommend, or what have you seen in in managing the people other than the person that is dying in those final moments, or in those final that final those final days?
1: Honestly, this is where uh, a doula comes in. <laughs> I know it sounds self promoting, but I don't know any other. I don't know a better way for the person dying to have their loved ones cared for in the way that they want them cared for. Mm. So in other words, if you know that it's going to be really hard for your partner and mm. maybe, um, then, and you know the best way to soothe them, mm. like when, when I go, can you just really make sure that um they are they get a chance to be alone out in nature hmm. because this is what happens when the family now is in their own you know um level of i'm just going to use the word hysteria they might know all the things beforehand but they're not going to remember them in the moment that's totally. why you have a doula that's why you, or you don't even have to have a doula just designate a person in your hmm. constellation hmm. to be the person who takes care of people yeah as you're dying and just after you're dying, the person who says, okay, now we're going to go for a walk. Yeah. No, no, I can't. Well, you probably could. And when you want to go, I'm here. And I'll just keep reminding you that this might be a good time for a walk. However, Mm -hmm. that person does that. Right. So um, that is, that's how you do it. Right.
0: Because that's my biggest concern, right? Like, as I think it is for many people who know that they're, gonna they're gonna die
1: soon like
0: my biggest concern is others
1: yeah yeah that's what i do as the doula is i am also the companion with the family Mm -hmm. and i'm letting them know you're doing fine you're doing good this is good you're doing really well and your job now is to make sure that the person who's dying knows that you are fine because Mm -hmm. you in fact really are Mm -hmm. uh I get it, you're sad, but you're fine. And you got to keep telling them that. Yeah. You're I'm good. I'm going to be you're fine. You're doing great. Yeah. You're doing great. Go ahead and go. You can know that you've done all the stuff, in fact, for that person logistically to be fine, to be mm-hmm. okay. And then you have made sure that there is a person, a companion around who can who's familiar with this space, who can hold them in their grief and tend to them that's all stuff that you you know it's funny i've never actually had this level of conversation with someone who's dying about how to take care of their um loved ones i told the you emotion. you
0: needed to come on the
1: podcast i had to pitch the you on. i know i you have evolved my practice just talking with you um and people do a good job of the, of the logistics you know the practical stuff, but that emotional tending—that mm-hmm. is where people tend to uh, not be as deliberate. The person dying, not right. or anybody actually right. not be, and then it comes to the doula to fill in. You know, mm. okay, now I can see what you could really use now is you know this, and mm. or just to be a silent presence. For the person to express whatever it is, however they want to, into that is actually—I got to tell you—mostly the job. <laughs> I tell people this all the time: who are I want to be a death doula, you know, like I do. You know, there's not that much. <sighs> wow. To me, that is the great gift of death, dying is you get, to, you get to this understanding about the boundaries between us are mm-hmm. very um, ephemeral. Mm-hmm. There's really, you know, we try to make this, we try to make hard boundaries and know this and know that. And, mm-hmm. um, but when you get down to the end, you kind of can really feel that those boundaries just become fuzz.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so just the being with... So when I'm, I'm talking about bad news in terms of even words, mm. like you you often people will try to want to claim something like, okay, well now they're dead and now we're supposed to do this. Mm. And it's like, you don't have to do, you don't even have to go there. Right. All there is, is what's happening right now. Right. Oh God. I can only imagine.
0: Have you dealt with, um, have you found yourself in situations with clients where, you know, You've had this great relationship with the the person who's dying, and and they pass, or during that process, you're you're sort of inter intermixed with their people, and kind of like you were describing the sacred space that you had created with your father, and not mm-hmm. wanting to muck it up with other energy, like you know. Um, have you encountered other people? who have sort of tried to
1: muck up those final moments or the, the oh moments yes after. And here's the, and here's the thing <laughs> this is another oh you're getting one of, you're getting to know one of my secret superpowers as a doula <laughs> here it is it's called presence hmm. this is a space that's um you don't need words in this space hmm. so it becomes how you're being in space So because I'm there and I am grounded and holding this particular kind of space, what I have found is that anybody, the the family member, whoever is going, ah, okay, breathe. I am now relating with them in this space. Come on. You can do this. Connect. Breathe. Good. You're fine.
0: Are they resistant to that?
1: Oh, they are for a moment. Yeah, But I, I I, have not had the experience because I have space. I have right. presence. So I, I can do this. So <laughs> I'm just like, okay, stop. Breathe. Mm-hmm. This is how we're going to be in this space. I don't even mm-hmm. actually say those words. I just say breathe. Mm. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Do you need to be someplace else for a few minutes and then you can come back? Mm-hmm. Hey, that's really good. You're doing really good.
0: You're like protecting that space for the person. Yes,
1: I am, and they and they know that. Yeah. And so the communication comes through like, oh, I'm not actually being appropriate in space. Right. Get the fuck out. So yeah. I will be leaving now and getting my shit together, and then I'll come yeah. back. Yeah. And then they come back and say, oh, "Okay, here you are. Good. Because yeah. you know you're what, Allison,
0: not- Allison wouldn't want your crazy energy. Like, get your shit together, and you come back when you're calm." <laughs> Um, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been incredible. I would like to talk to you for approximately six more hours. Um, But (laughs) rounding up, (laughs) rounding up, um, is there anything you would like, again, because this is, this is not the death community. This is uh, the general pop, uh, general population. Is there anything you would want the general population to know or anything you wish people understood? Any, any like words you just would want to share? that you haven't already? Because this has been incredible. Nobody knows how to do this.
1: Right. Uh, so however you're doing it, it's probably just fine. Mm. So I want to say, cut yourself some slack. Mm. I I actually very rarely say to people, you're fucking this up. Right. I have never said that to anybody about, around death. Yeah. You know what? This this what you're doing. Forget it. This is just stop yeah um and I don't have them I might say you know what I just said take a breath Mm -hmm. you know pause Mm -hmm. because and I do that because I can see that the person wants to do it well Mm -hmm. and they just don't know how right then and that's what I want to say to people out there is you're going to die and you're going to fall apart um you, the dying person, and you, the person companioning somebody who's dying, you, the family member or the friend, you're, you're going to fall apart mm-hmm. probably more than once. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That's how it's done. That is just how it's done. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. Only no. through, right? And you know what? And that falling apart is the beauty. Yeah. That's actually where the beauty is. Yeah. Fall all apart. Hey,
0: if you're a fan of the pod, do me a solid. Just drop a one sentence review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever they're calling it now. Um, it really helps introduce the podcast to new people. And for more motivation or to contact the show, head to notimetowasteproject.com or follow us on Instagram at Project.
2: James, what's up, man? How you doing?
3: <laughs> good, thanks. Good to, uh, good to see you again. It's been a while.
2: It's been a while. I think the last time I was at a poker event at the Soho House for your dad's foundation, so that was a spectacular event. Yeah, yeah, it was a good time. And, uh, you know, I know you are a tennis player. For all those of you out there that do not know, James is an all-star tennis player, but i just love to get to know how you kind of found tennis as a young boy growing up in uh, New York
3: yeah well both my parents loved playing they actually met on the tennis court and played together a lot and i joke with them pretty often that the only reason i picked up tennis because they were too cheap to pay for a babysitter they would bring (laughs) my brother and i up to uh to play when they were playing and we would be running around crazed uh hitting things with sticks and probably hitting each other in the in the stands while they were playing and then when they were done they would you know Two rambunctious little kids, they tossed us, uh, toss us a few balls. We started hitting tennis balls, and, and I kind of loved it from the start, but partly because I wanted to be like my parents. I wanted to be like my big brother, who, who took to it pretty quickly as well.
2: Wonderful. And you mentioned, you know, your parents are a big inspiration in your life. Your mom gave the skills to your brother, but your dad was a big influence for probably both you guys. Um, And, you know, I know your dad, you know, went through some health challenges and he's he's not with us today. And that's kind of how you're connected to the cancer fight. So I'd love if you could just share a little bit more about, you know, your father and your father's story and kind of what happened at that time in your life.
3: Yeah. So my dad was always the, the biggest preacher of hard work. And um, he, he always practiced what he preached. You know, the guy never missed a day of work. He did everything he could to, to make himself better. Unfortunately, he got sick and we got the diagnosis in 2003. And um, it was cancer of the stomach lining and it spread to his lungs, to the esophagus and, uh, and really all over. And um, it was unfortunate he did everything he could to fight I mean like I said it, hard work was uh, was what he prided himself on and he did every experimental procedure every experimental treatment everything he could to, to possibly get better it was um, it was unfortunate that something like that had to, to had to happen and that was why then the fight started with me to to make foundation if he had uh, more time if he had more ability to fight, Uh, this diagnosis from from an early stage i think he would have uh he would have still been around so i want to make sure everyone has that fighting chance to make those adjustments in their lives and uh and do whatever needs to be done and and rely on the science that's going to hopefully uh heal plenty
2: more people wonderful i mean thank you for doing that at that time in your life i think around 2004 or 5 you yourself went through some pretty serious health challenges coupling that with you know what your father was going through you know what was that like
3: Yeah, that was a a crazy time and what uh, was the inspiration for my first book um, because it was just, you know, in a a sad way, it was remarkable what was going on at that time. I I, I think that I still said then and I say it now, that the luckiest thing that happened to me was that I broke my neck that year um, because I fractured vertebrae and um, was sent home. Uh, I immediately went back to New York from Rome where I did that and um, that was the last six weeks of my dad's life. So I made it so that he didn't feel like I was – uh, getting out of my career right. to be with him. And um, I felt great just being home with him, just to be there, just to say all the things that needed to be said and, and take care of anything that I could take care of while I was there and while I was recovering. But um, it was such a strange time where I was recovering and he was getting worse. And yeah. um, you could see it. It was at that point, it was a pretty steep decline. The toll that that took on me, the stress um, affected me physically and that uh That gave me a a case of shingles and it affected me. That kept me off the tour for another eight months or so, but um, really opened my eyes to a lot of other things that were important. I felt really lucky to have that. It gave me a a different perspective. I felt even more fortunate to have the friends that I did that cared about me and it made me sort of refocus on their lives and how much I had missed because I was so um, uh, sort of isolated in that tennis world, in that tennis bubble. And uh, uh, that's so important now.
2: Yeah. And I absolutely agree with everything you said. When I was 14 years old when cancer came into my home and took my father away from me. And I just remember like, you know, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to come out of my room. I didn't want to talk to my friends, but it was the community around me, my soccer team at the time. They're the ones that reached out and embraced me. They're the ones that reached out and reinforced, you know, like my values at the time when I felt completely alone. And I, I truly think that like, you know, nothing creates comfort and confidence more than knowing you're not alone when facing a life challenge. So I can imagine when you were dealing with all this stuff and just having everyone around, you must just been a a blessing in your life. Yeah. Yeah. it was. Growing up as an athlete, whether you're a competitive athlete, professional athlete, amateur athlete, I think there are certain skills that you learn as an athlete that can translate well to whether it's overcoming a health challenge, like shingles or broken back, or even taking care of a loved one, like, you know, your parents. So do you, do you agree with that? Are there any skills that you feel you, learned as an athlete that helped you going through these times of crisis
3: being able to deal with the highs and the lows of of any situation and and still finding the best path Mm -hmm. that ability to improve that ability to every day find a way to make yourself better. And, um, when you're dealing with, um, situations like health scares, health, um, real serious health concerns. Um, sometimes there's not much you can do. Sometimes the best thing for you is to rest and, you know, you have to just commit to knowing that like, Hey, this is the best thing I can do for myself today. And that's rest. That's take this medication. That's doing a little bit of rehab or whatever it is you can do, uh, to get yourself better and to improve each day. And I always felt like if you if you do what you can to improve each day, those huge milestones are going to come in the future, but they're not going to seem as distant. It's not going to mm-hmm. seem like Everest when all you're talking about is taking 10 steps today or whatever. And then the more you take it, the more you take it before you know it, you're at the top of that mountain.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I kind of, as an athlete always based my general health on like how fit I was at that moment. So mm-hmm. when I got sick and like, you know, I couldn't exercise, I couldn't do anything. Um, I just felt lost, like my identity was stolen from me, you know. Um, So like when you were at, you know, third ranked 30 in the world, then you get this crazy injury. And now, like you said, you know, you, you, you struggled to walk to the end of the block. You know, how did you structure your day and your time and your exercise routine to stay motivated, inspired Mm -hmm. to overcome these challenges?
3: Well, that's where I had to, I had to sort of give in to knowing that, I can just do my best, and even if my best right now seems kind of laughable to what I used to be doing when I was doing you know, four hours on the court, an hour in the gym, an hour on the track, now all it was was I can walk to the end of the block and then come back and maybe I can do a couple things while I'm on my back. I can do a couple crunches without getting dizzy or something, but there was a time where we would go out and the most I could do was hit for 10 minutes, and even that was at a slow pace, almost like hitting little mini tennis, and that's it. That's all I can do today. But that's the best I can do. So I gotta be accepting of that. And you know, then okay, next day maybe I can do a little more, a little more. Now that's too much, I need to rest. And you just figure out what you can do and just being okay with that and say, Hey, I'm gonna get back there. I'm gonna do this. It's just gonna take it's gonna take today. This is all I can do. Tomorrow I can do a little more. Tomorrow I can do a little more. Eventually I got to that point where I could get back out on the court.
2: So mentally right you know let's let's pretend now you're you're fully healthy you're back on the court i think it'll be interesting for some folks listening to this a lot of a lot of us are cancer survivors ourselves trying to get back into it um so when you are you know fully functioning you know star athlete and you're a, about to you know go for a big workout or a huge match mm-hmm. um and you're the mental side of you is you know getting getting into you do you have any strategies to kind of get through those you know stressful situations mental blocks um that help you perform better as an athlete because you know i mean i when i got my scans coming up you know i i look at these things as like a, it's an athletic event and i got to mentally prepare to go in to get my scans cuz i got scanxiety and i'm freaking out yeah. and then i just get in my own head so i'd love to hear from someone who's played at the top level maybe some mental strategies that help you get through some challenging times
3: i would just think about i've put in this work the shots that i need to execute now i've practiced thousands of times I've done this before. I know I'm 100% confident I can do this again right now. It's just a matter of of executing what I've executed so many times. But then, you know, before the match, one of the things I would always do is just that little bit of visualization of how you want it to go, how you expect it to go. And then I would still visualize, I know a lot of people want to visualize just the perfect scenario, but I also would visualize what could happen if it goes wrong. When things go wrong, like how am I going to adjust? If If something happens, there's a plan B. And if, hey, this guy is serving unbelievable and I'm not getting any opportunities, staying focused, staying, you know, with a clear path and focusing on my serve on the things that I can control.
2: I love that. I think that's a huge and incredible tip for some cancer survivors out there. You know, learn a little bit more about visualization because, uh, you know, it's huge help for me, huge help for J- James as well. Well, uh, our last question is like, do you have any advice uh, for anyone out there who may be taking care of a loved one or going through a health challenge themselves right now to, you know, make it a little bit easier?
3: Well, um, the one thing I would say is, is sadly, there's a lot of people that are in that situation. So uh, rely on those around you, the community. There's so many people, there's so many foundations that are willing to, to listen. I think people sometimes, uh, myself included, athletes especially, aren't out there looking for help and they're not going to ask and they're too proud. Please don't be that way. Please ask for help. Um, it's out there.
2: If you'd like to support Active Against Cancer's initiative with Morris Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and help cancer patients stay active through treatment with virtual fitness programs, check out activeagainstcancer.com backslash podcast. That's A-K-T-I-V against backslash podcast to learn more and donate online. Just be sure to put in no time to waste in the comment box. So get out there and maximize your moments and keep crushing it. See you next time.